Welcome to Your Beacon, a podcast produced by the Oxford International Relations Society. I'm your host, Rupert Sparling. In the past few weeks, a new UN Secretary General has been appointed, a diplomat who, in theory at least, is supposed to represent 7 billion people. I set out to learn more about what this extraordinary role entails, and what was the process like in the past, and is it true that this was the most transparent appointment process so far. Why did the UN yet again not appoint a woman as Secretary General, and why does that matter? Let's answer some of those questions by diving into the first interview. I asked Professor Simon Chesterman, Professor of Law at the National University of Singapore and editor of Secretary or General, the UN Secretary General World Politics, about the role of the Secretary General in the modern era. So the Secretary General is a, a kind of unique figure in world politics. In the one sense, he or she has this extraordinary platform um, as the world's diplomat, uh, head of an organization that is intended to bring out the better angels in human nature and so on. Uh, but at the, same, at the same time, he or she has virtually no resources. The budget of the UN is a couple of billion dollars a year. They have notionally 100,000 peacekeepers, but those peacekeepers operate in national contingents and report to, through national chains of command. Uh, and so anytime the Secretary General actually wants to do anything, then he or she has to go around with a begging bowl to the uh, uh, member states. Uh, and so for this reason, the title of Secretary General is sometimes understood as embodying the dilemma. Is it a secretary or is it a general? Is it someone whose job is primarily to run an organization, the United Nations, or is it someone who's intended to be a leader, a general, as it were? Uh, and for the most part, member states have tended to suggest that they would prefer someone who's more in the vein of a secretary, someone who's not going to rock the boat too much. So that's, if you like, in very broad terms. There is, of course, the UN Charter. The UN Charter in Article 97 defines the role as being the chief administrative officer of mm. the organization. So that's very different, for example, from being a CEO. It's the chief administrative officer whose job is to, on the one hand, run the meetings, make sure that the United Nations continues to function. Um, and yet, again, the Charter is uh, reflective of this alternative larger role in that the Secretary General is also given the power in Article 99 to bring matters to the attention of the Security Council, which, in his or her opinion, may threaten international peace and security. And even though that sounds like a pretty minor power, that very limited role has laid the foundations for quite an active political role uh, in all sorts of conflicts uh, through the history of the UN. So you really then have this dilemma, what is the job of the Secretary General? Is it simply to run the United Nations organization or try and achieve things for humanity? Uh, and how every individual, and we've now got the ninth, has um, taken up that dilemma, has really defined his or her, well, his thus far tenure. Uh, you say how each individual takes up that role, but of course it's also true to say that the state of world politics has to a large extent determined how successful each individual can be. Do you think the current state of animosity between America and Russia is going to prevent him in achieving what he says is his priority, namely peace? Do you think that's going to be an extreme limiting factor? So, so you raise a, a really key issue, which is that the Secretary General is uh, very much behold, 
important to geopolitical circumstances. Uh, and so through the Cold War, for example, for the roles of the first uh, six or seven secretaries general, the, uh, the role was very limited. Uh, and where the UN demonstrated that it could make a difference was in what tended to be orphaned conflicts. So the UN was most influential where neither the East or the West had a major stake. Um, we then had, with the rise of Boutros Boutros Ghali in the early 1990s, uh, we had the Secretary General really aspiring to a much grander role. Uh, and Boutros Ghali arguably overreached in the early 1990s, and that was one of the reasons why he was denied a second term in uh, 1996, uh, and Kofi Annan came in to, to take the position. Um, so on your question about where we are today, um, I think it's pretty clear that no Secretary General has much influence over the United States or Russia when they don't want there to be influence. The UN, I suppose, was the forum for things like the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 60s. Um, there have been some discussions of the situation in Crimea, Ukraine recently. Typically, when a permanent member state, a permanent member of the Security Council who has a veto, if their interests are at stake in a conflict, uh, then it's unlikely to be a major issue at the UN. That's why, for example, the Northern Ireland situation was essentially off the United Nations radar for most of the history of that conflict because Britain would have vetoed any uh, attempt to get involved and prevented the Secretary General from trying to play a major role. Mm. So I don't think I don't think it's that unusual that we have a situation where the US and Russia are divided. And when Guterres says that peace is going to be his main priority, I think it'll be interesting to watch what he does in conflicts like the uh, the situation in Colombia at the moment, uh, the various conflicts in, in Africa, in Congo, Cote d'Ivoire, to some extent, I suppose, in Libya, uh, Central African Republic. Those are the places that tend not to be front page news stories, not on the top of the agenda of the United States and Russia, where the UN really can make a difference. Uh, and I suspect that's going to be his focus, mm. at least to start off with. As Professor Simon Chesterman mentioned there, it was Antonio Guterres, the former Prime Minister of Portugal, who emerged from this process ultimately victorious. Now, I asked Rania Yankupolos, a writer at Open Democracy, and someone who has followed this process very closely indeed, why this was the case, and why Guterres had been able to, if you like, outpace all his fellow competitors. Mr. Guterres was flagged by the media um, as a clear frontrunner right away. Um, look at any publication from The Guardian to The New York Times, um, anywhere you choose. Um, and in terms of the performance in the four straw polls leading up to the color-coded ballot last week and then um, the recommendation by the Security Council and his appointment this coming Thursday, um, he really was the clear front runner, according to the UN as well, um, just completely blowing past the competition. Um, I think what's most important to look at in these straw poll results is that the veto and the discouraged vote in the straw poll vote um, is what's most important. So he, in the first straw poll vote on July 12th, um, didn't have a single country voting against him, which is kind of um, surprising considering that New Zealand was on the Security Council and had its own candidate. Um, and then moving forward to September 9th, the straw poll right before um, the color-coded ballot, he did have two discouraged votes, but they're not entirely um, 
Poland had its own candidate, and then we know that Russia wanted an Eastern European country. That is to say that Russia did come out and say that if Guterres is seen by everybody else as the clear pick for next SG, that they would come on board um, and kind of let go of that need for an Eastern European. And in this really surprising, unprecedented show of solidarity among the 15 Security Council members, they did come out um, in front of the Security Council chambers last week to communicate the results of that color-coded ballot. And Guterres came out as the clear pick. He had 13 encouraged votes and um, two countries, which we can assume to be New Zealand and Russia, stating that they had no opinion. So, so that's really something provided this, this quote, quick result, because there was no reason to have further dialogue among the Security Council members following these rounds of straw polls. I think what perhaps contributed to the excitement of, of last week and, and, and maybe people thought that we'd have a surprise in the race or that it would drag on a little bit is this late entry by Miss um, Kristalina Georgieva from Bulgaria. And in terms of what the media was saying and what was portrayed in the press, that made things very exciting and, and shook things up a bit um, because she there was speculation for, for weeks, maybe even months, about her candidacy. People saying that Merkel had approached Putin on the sides of the G20 in, in speculation of, of supporting her for secretary general. Uh, she was present at the United Nations in New York during the General Assembly, um, seen in bilateral meetings. And she also held an open event at the Institute, International Institute and at IPI across from the UN, where the first question posed to her was, are you going to be secretary general? Are you going to put in your bid? And she kept denying and denying until I think it was last Friday when Bulgaria officially nominated her. And I think that made things interesting just because, as you pointed out in your questions, Rupert, there was this extreme support for Irina Bukova, who was the original candidate put forth by Bulgaria. Mm. And Miss Bukova had a lot of popular support. Um, if you look at the Al Jazeera uh, UN debate poll polling results, Al Jazeera in, in sponsorship of the UN put on a debate, a televised debate uh, with the candidates of Secretary General. And Miss Bokova did. She was the clear front runner, according to these popular polls, have getting uh, 29% of the votes. And in terms of looking at the straw polls, she was the only woman who consistently finished in the top five candidates. Mm -hmm. And looking at the color-coded ballots, too, performed very, very well. So it was perhaps a surprise to many that Bulgaria would drop her, uh, their support of her as a candidate for secretary general and then nominate Miss Georgieva. And, and, and Miss Georgieva, she's very skilled. She had a lot of um, international experience at the World Bank, um, at the European Commission as a high commissioner for many years. And just looking at her CV, she had many, many experiences um, internationally from working um, very closely with Russia at the World Bank, I think in Russia, going to school in the UK, in the US. And so she really had good relations, it, it would seem, to the public with these countries and perhaps was a wonderful choice for secretary general. But at the end of the day, she has no UN experience. And I think that this was something that became very prevalent at her hearing with 
UN member states in support of her candidacy the mon- last Monday before just just four days before the Security Council announced its support of Guterres. It was personally, I was I was at that hearing. I, I, I spoke with UN insiders after the hearing, and it really was a disappointing showing for her. She's somebody who is so experienced and so eloquent and so full of energy, and it, it, it was hard. It was difficult for her in the hearing. Um, her, uh, I mean, this may sound petty, but her, her command of English was not in tip-top shape and in a arena, in, in a setting where you have translators, you want to go to the language that you are most comfortable with. Mm. Um, she didn't come down on any issue and she really didn't know how to talk about the UN as, as, as an insider of the UN. And so I think it's really hard to justify someone like that in this open process, particularly when you have so many candidates who do have UN experience being secretary general of the United Nations. So I think her late entrance really played against her. I think her lack of UN experience played against her. And I think this really awkward relationship between her, Bokova, uh, Ms. Bokova and Bulgaria were all probably contributing factors um, to her not becoming the next SG when many people thought that perhaps she was best positioned to be so. So then on to Guterres and why he was successful. I have a lot to say on this matter. And first, I would just say that out of all the candidates, you probably have to look at his experience. And we had a lot of experienced candidates in this race for SG. You have Ms. Bokova, who is in a diplomat for Bulgaria um, at the UN, at UNESCO, at the bilateral level for over 30 years, and now head of UNESCO, the first female head of UNESCO for 10 years. You had Ms. Helen Clark from New Zealand, also prime minister of her country, the first elected female prime minister of New Zealand, and then head of UNDP, the first female head of UNDP for 10 years. So you had very highly qualified people running against um, Mr. Guterres. But Mr. Guterres, also extremely qualified. He was a high-level diplomat in his country, um, the Socialist Party leader from 1992 to 1995, before becoming prime minister for two terms. And then he went on to be the High Commissioner for Refugees for 10 years after that. And and in that role, specifically in what is going on with this this current global movements of people and this refugee crisis, as people are calling it, Mm. um, he had to travel the world and deal and witness and adapt to and, and try to solve some of the world's most gruesome tragedies. And so I really think that that unique experience probably positioned him best for the current geopolitical climate and the current world environment that we're living in. Not only that, but he has proven um, to be a reformist in these positions. And my particular background comes from the gender equality perspective. And I was lucky enough to interview Mr. Guterres for Open Democracy about what he's done for women in the past, what he's done to promote women in, in politics in terms of the representation, but also do also what he did for women's empowerment and gender equality and changing the image of women as victims um, to women as agents of change and as leaders. And I think that this is something that's actually very important because in our day and age, and and I don't know what your unique experience is or others listening, but when I grew up, when I grew up, when I'm 23 years old and I, and I saw women as leaders my whole life. And 
when I was in, in school, when I was in elementary school and, and middle school and high school and college, people, it was not that far off to say, you know, aspire to be president, aspire to be the head of, a, of the World Bank, things like this. And, and not very long ago, in the 90s, women were very much seen as, as victims and only as victims and, and could not be seen as, as leaders. And if you look at Guterres' track record, in the 90s, Portugal didn't have a minister on gender equality. They didn't have a high commissioner for gender equality and family planning. Um, Portugal didn't have bills and quotas for women's representation in politics. And Guterres created all of these positions. And he changed and championed these bills to put women in leadership in, Port in Portugal and in political leadership positions. Um, then as UNHCR, he really championed this change in rhetoric, this change of perception uh, from women as victims to women as, as agents of change. Um, and he changed the UNHCR from a male-dominated culture to one that is truly gender-motivated. From the inclusion and leadership of refugee women to creating what is called the UNHCR's five commitments to women, which are a set of five very strong undertakings in areas that are absolutely key for, for both the protection and empowerment of women and girl refugees. These are things from registration to food security, health programming, I don't know, economic empowerment and, and in response to sexual gender-based violence. So he really, as in these high-level positions, made the most of, of being there and, and instilling change while he was there. So we have a picture of Antonio Guterres, our new UN Secretary General, and also an idea of why he was successful. But let's return to the transparency, the apparent transparency of this process. To learn about this, I spoke to Natalie Samara Singh, Executive Director of the United Nations Association UK and co-founder of the One for Seven Billion campaign, which lobbied for far greater transparency throughout this appointment process. I asked her first, how had this process been more transparent and why was it important that it be so? So I think our starting point was really that the appointment of the Secretary General, you know, the head of the UN, mm. is something that affects all the states in the world and all the world's people. Um, it's a role where you know you have the potential to act as a sort of mouthpiece for the vulnerable. You have the power to bring matters to the attention of the Security Council. You can really sort of set the global agenda. And of course, you're in charge as a manager of you know, the only global organisation that we have that works on peace, development, human rights issues. But sadly, that decision really was um, you know, uh, controlled by the five permanent members of the Security Council. And we felt it was simply unfair that five states should hold sway over this important decision. So we wanted to inject some transparency into the process, but also to make it more um, inclusive. So we felt that all states should really have a say and be able to scrutinise candidates, uh, hear from them, tell them what they thought their priorities should be, uh, you know, vet, do a little bit of vetting, that sort of thing. But we also felt that um, civil society and the wider public and journalists should play a role in that process as well. So we formed the campaign really to try and transform something that uh, you know, hadn't changed at the UN for, for 70 years. It was mm. quite, a, quite a tall order. UN reform
platform tends to move at an incredibly glacial pace. Mm-hmm. And we started the campaign in 2013 in the hope of building some sort of, you know, steam and momentum. And uh, I think we were quite fortunate in how the stars aligned. I think lots of um, states at the UN are really quite frustrated by the imbalance of power between the General Assembly, which is supposed to be, you know, the, the forum where all states make decisions, and the Security Council, in particular the permanent members of P5. So I think they saw our campaign as a way to sort of redress that balance a little bit, make it known that, you know, they too need to have a role and a say in important decisions. I think we were um, quite uh, fortunate as well to get the support of the UK, so the UK, um, I have to say thanks uh, in part to our um, advocacy and, and, and lobbying, which we, we did for about two years. We worked on the UN, the UK's ambassador to the UN for about two years before he actually went out there. Their support was crucial because it was support from within the P5. And I think that really tipped the balance uh, for us as well. And I think we did um, a lot to make sure this wasn't just a sort of campaign that took place within uh, you know the confines of embassies in New York. So for us to make a difference, we had to reach out to capitals and communities and to really engage people in the process. And a lot of you know NGOs and states were very skeptical. They said to us, why on earth would people care about some sort of distant UN recruitment process? But actually, we were surprised at how many people responded really positively to the campaign. I think people realised more and more that the problems we face can't really be solved by one government alone. So if you're a, you know, a farmer in Sri Lanka, you know that climate change is affecting your, your mm. crops and you know that your government can't really do anything about that by itself. So I think we, we, you know, we, we tapped into the sort of faith and frustration that people have uh, in, in, with regard to the UN. And within about three, I would say three, four months, we'd started building up a movement of about, I'd say at the beginning was uh, about sort of 10 million or so supporters that grew to nearly 200 million mm. over the course of the campaign. And we also managed to attract the support of over 750 NGOs around the world. And I'm really proud of that because it's not the sort of big usual suspects, although we did work with, you know, Avaz and Amnesty International. There were lots of tiny grassroots organisations in Africa and Asia that supported us as well. In terms of the format, there were the debates, but some candidates, for example, Helen Clark, was quite keen on using social media to um, talk about her position. So she's quite active on Twitter. Other candidates like Antonio Guterres wasn't really active on those sort of forms of, of, of communication. Would you like to see a world in which the candidates for the main most part were those sort of media? I think so. I think it's important. I mean, one one other one other theme that came up, and rightly so, very strongly during the debates and the whole process was this issue of communication. Mm. So it's the idea that the UN, you know, yes, it does a lot of things that people aren't, you know, pleased about. A lot of the times, those things are actually down to member states, and it's really boring to say that. But you know, when you're looking at issues at Syria, when you say what's going on in Yemen, why isn't the UN doing anything? Well, actually, it's not the UN, it's not the Secretary General, it's the powerful states and the Security Council, and that's a really boring message. But it one, it's one that needs to be said, I think, and repeated time and time again. And you need a Secretary General who is able to to have a proactive media strategy and actually engage with these problems and put out those messages before they become really damaging. Lots of you know times the UN. You know, does does the, 
does screw things up. But I think a lot of times that, that, that message is lost between a very inflammatory headline when really the truth is a lot more complicated. And I, you know, so often I wish that the UN would, would, would be more strident in its media approach. But it's also, you know, just a fact of um, how we engage and how we talk to people now. I mean, people's opinions, news, you know, everything they read and digest is increasingly coming through social media channels, not just in the West, but in all parts of the world. And it's about fostering that sort of direct engagement and making it genuinely two-way. So at the moment, I think the UN itself, you know, will, has an Instagram account, has a Twitter account. It's very good at that. Actually, it's getting a lot better. But it's about sort of um, learning, I think, from NGOs and you know other companies that have very good ways to actually reach out to the people that the you know the UN is ultimately trying to, to help, and that could have a really transformative impact on uh, the way to justice programs. Um, so communication is absolutely vital. In terms of the candidates, I thought it was good that I think almost all candidates um, had some sort of presence. Um, Guterres had a website, even though he didn't, um, I think, uh, do Twitter uh, and Facebook. And I think Helen Clark was quite a prolific um, tweeter before the, before the campaign as well. And I, I do think it helps to certainly publicise the ideas that were out there. I think a lot of the excellent candidate ideas, even those who weren't successful, I really hope they don't get lost. And I think that the fact that they're out there and people were discussing them, that's really helped. So if you've got some of our partners in One for Seven Billion have just uh, Equality Now. They've just released a feminist agenda, which borrows a few ideas and adds some, you know, some more of their own based on, I think, a lot of conversations I've seen on social media as well. Mm. Um, so I do think it had a beneficial effect. But, you know, it goes back to what I was um, trying to say before. It's about balancing the public and the political constituencies. And you were never going to, you know, Win, win this race as it were because of a strong social media presence but um, I do think it was an effective way to get key messages out there and also actually just to build up some interest in the UN I mean it was pretty pretty nice for us to be able to pick up the phone and have a journalist ask us about the process and the candidates and what's going on mm. as opposed to just saying oh you know we've had this really negative story about the UN again <laughs> we sort of go to um Sort of defense in a defensive and explaining mode. So it was very nice to see that sort of genuine interest and excitement. And I find it very touching. I mean, I, you know, when you look at Twitter and I look at some of the people who submitted questions to our uh, events, I sort of think, God, if I were you, you know, in Central African Republic, I'm not sure I would have that level of faith and interest in the UN. But mm. people do. People do still see it as that vital lifeline and that opportunity for them. And I think the fact that candidates were so active on social media really played a part in, in, in bringing that to the fore. Finally, let's return to Professor Simon Chesterman. I asked him whether he thought Antonio Guterres would be a revolutionary Secretary General. So, here's one of the areas in which I think uh, the process that developed of these so-called informal dialogues, as they were called at the UN, is useful that one of the most important and underrated roles of the Secretary-General is not the kind of secretary in the sense I was describing earlier, the administrative role or the general, the leadership role in the sense of the, the taking a lead on policy questions. It's the communication role. And I think Guterres did very well uh, in terms of his presentation, his media ability, 
his ability to get the message of the United Nations across. In terms of substance, um, I mean, no one can really disagree with peace as an agenda for the UN, so that's by no stretch a revolutionary agenda. Um, and I don't think he's proposing anything incredibly controversial uh, in, his, uh, in his initial tenure, uh, although obviously we'll see how that develops over time. Um, but I think he will have the benefit of having run one of the larger entities in the UN. And the hope then is that he might be more like Kofi Annan. I mean, it's striking that in the past, uh, there's been a preference in the UN for uh, foreign ministers. Four of the past eight secretaries general have been foreign ministers. Three of them were diplomats. We've only had one person who came up through the UN, who was Kofi Annan. Hmm. So Guterres, like Kofi Annan, is a, is a UN insider. He knows how things work. He knows how the organization runs. He knows how to get things done within within the system. <laughs> but he's also a former head of government. And that's, that's new for the UN. There were some serious concerns about whether they should even consider former heads of government or heads of state, like Helen Clark, Danilo Turk, who's the former president of uh, Slovenia, uh, also a former UN insider. So the fact that he's run a government, that he's run a UN department, I think speaks very well. Uh, whereas Ban Ki-moon, when he came in, was very much in the foreign minister mold coming out of Korea. Uh, and was, I, I think if you look at his, it as secretarial general, he was much more on the secretary side. So I think there is hope that Guterres will come in with a strong mandate to achieve the objectives of the organization. Now, how he goes about doing that, um, how he achieves things in areas where member states can't achieve them on their own, areas like peace, but also development, human rights, uh, the key challenges at the moment of climate change, um, that's going to depend partly on his own innate abilities, the team he builds around him, uh, but also the charisma that he can deploy. And I think what we're starting to see in the media coverage of him is a recognition that this is someone who's much more interesting than Ban Ki-moon. I mean, Ban, as I said, is a dedicated, competent individual, but no one would accuse him of being charismatic. Uh, and I think that's something that Guterres can bring to the role, a bit perhaps like Kofi Annan did. Um, so the celebrity aspect, the charm of the United Nations, and the obvious attractiveness of an organization dedicated to peace development and human rights, I'm cautiously optimistic uh, that Antonio Guterres will be able to raise the profile of the organization, raise it in the, pro in the priorities of the member states, and raise it in the awareness of the general public that it's trying to serve. And that is, I'm afraid, all we have time for here at The Beacon. I should like to thank all our guests, Natalie Samarasing, Arania Yankupoulos, and Professor Simon Chesterman. Thank you to our sponsors, Morgan Stanley, John Hopkins, and the University of Kent. My name is Rupert Sparling, and until next time, thank you for listening to The Beacon. Thank you.